Welcome to Hunting Land. If you'd like to stay up to date on hunting tactics, land management, land values, and land market dynamics, this is a podcast for you. I'm Joe Baia here with my co-host Clint Flowers. And Clint, 2020 is behind us. And one of the things that trended in 2020 was a lot more buyers were in the market for land. How'd you wrap your year up? We had a lot of closings that came down to the wire. Uh, We had a few that have run over, but I mean, Things finished strong and they've stayed strong into 2021. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how how things go as we start up 2021. But one of the bright spots in the land market was folks that were looking for smaller acreages, really trying to get out of urban areas, get away from some of the hustle and bustle of uh, metropolitan areas, and get out into the country a little bit, start to enjoy some of the some of the freedoms and and uh, just some of that more rural lifestyle. And, and so today we're going to cover some of that. And a little bit later in the show, we're going to be talking with Jason Shearer of Radiant Places all about how to start a homestead because it's, it's kind of a daunting task if you've never done it before. There's a lot that goes into that. And, and, you know, for folks that maybe have a property and are thinking about homesteading on it, we're going to go into the ins and outs of what you need to do to set up. But also for folks that are considering buying a property, you need to know, is this going to be a good piece of land to do that with and some of the things you need to look for uh, if you're considering doing that in 2021. But before we get there, let's hear from this week's show sponsor. And this week it is SunSouth. This year is the year to do more. And with John Deere equipment from SunSouth, you can do more and save more during the New Year's sales event. Get 0% financing on a great selection of John Deere equipment at SunSouth, like the 1025R and 3025E tractors with loader and Gator XUVs like the 835 cab. Never compromise on quality when you can own a new John Deere. Shop SunSouth during the New Year's sales event. SunSouth, for those that do. Offers expire January 31st, 2021. Some restrictions apply. See dealer for details. All right, Clint. Well, you know, we like to hear from those guys over at Timbermart South. Before we get into this week's interview with Radiant Places, let's go get that current timber market update. Joining us today is Jonathan Smith, the Executive Director of Timber Mart South for this week's current timber market prices update for the state of Virginia. Jonathan, welcome back to Hunting Land. You know, it has not been much to talk about in the timber prices update. Been pretty flat and down in some areas. Is Virginia doing any better? Unfortunately, Joe, um, Virginia's been relatively flat, just like everything else. Not a lot of change quarter over quarter or year over year, uh, especially on the pine product. Well, when I think Virginia, uh, I think the Shenandoah Valley, I think a lot more, a lot more hardwood. But what does Virginia produce more of? Are, Are they more of a pine state than they are hardwood or do they have a pretty, pretty strong hardwood market as well? They're pretty strong. You know, they're a pretty diverse state. You know, if you think about it, they go all the way from the Appalachian mountain ranges all the way to Atlantic coastal regions. So, you know, in Virginia, you can you can find anything from your good hardwood products all the way down to your normal traditional coastal pine products. So uh, it's got a pretty diverse market uh, and a fairly substantial uh, forestry industry um, about According to the Department of Forestry there in Virginia, they say they have about 3% total state output. Wow. So how are we doing in the in the pine markets? Uh, where, where are prices now? In the pine markets, pine saw timber is around $20 a ton. Uh, your chipping saw is at about $19 a ton with um, pine putwood coming in around 11 So uh, one thing that we do see there up in Virginia is that they're their logs are more of a small log market, uh, if you will, so that you can see the convergence of chip and saw and pine saw timber there in that market. Uh, what about hardwood? How, what are the prices doing with hardwood? Hardwood saw timber, just like all the other states, is your, your leading product there at around $30 a ton, uh, and then your hardwood pulpwood is uh, about $6.5 a ton for third quarter 2020. Is the sawmill market there in Virginia pretty pretty developed? I mean, it, you know, we, we talk a lot about new mills opening. Anything on the horizon there uh, with regards to sawmills being opened or, or having just been opened? Uh, so, Enviva has announced an expansion uh, there in Franklin. So, uh, that'll be good for the uh, uh, putwood side of things. That's 
probably the the biggest news that's going right now in Virginia is the that expansion there in Franklin. Clint, when there's a new opening like that, like he's talking about in Franklin, how does it, how does that affect those local landowners? You know, people right there within say, I mean, what's the radius of Franklin, Virginia that is that landowners are going to see an effect from that mill opening? Well, you've got the actual hauling distance within the that they'll be taking the wood, but then you've also got the markets that may be outside of what would be considered the normal hauling distance for that particular mill, but that was competing for the same wood, uh, now has to step up its game to pay more to try to pull it back its direction. So there's a twofold win there for landowners, uh, generally speaking, and sometimes you'll see a higher response in prices out the gate because people are trying to, to ride the expectations of the market you know, versus what may actually be the most average or median unit prices in the future. Well, it's definitely something to pay attention to. Those mill openings are really important for for the landowners that are that are relatively close. What is that radius you think, Clint? Is it sixty miles or so? Where where does it start to lose its uh, value? You know, in our area, it's sixty miles. You know, we've had some really unique circumstances with a little push out to, you know, eighty to a hundred, but those are highly unique. You know, sixty is the most common you hear, but that could change in areas, you know, different parts of the country. Yeah. Well, for folks. You know, if you're thinking about making a land investment, it definitely pays to stay in touch with a with a local land professional uh, who's who's aware of the markets in that area and and subscribe to something like Timber Mart South. Uh, you know, Jonathan, you guys cover not only the prices, the ter- current timber prices, but you also cover these mill openings, mill closures, uh, all these things that could really affect someone's in- investment in a piece of land. And uh, man, thanks for, uh, thanks for hooking us up with the timber market prices update. If folks want to get a subscription to Timber Mart South and stay up to date on all the prices, news, and market trends, how can they do that? Yes, please look for us on our, our website at timbermartsouth.com. That's probably the easiest way to get in touch with us. We cover from uh, Eastern Texas to Virginia. We cover 11 states in the Southeast. We divide our states up into two regions per state. So we cover those. We have 22 regions. and We would look forward to the opportunity to help you uh, get good information so that you can make the best management decisions and uh, work with your local consultants. This week's current timber market update brought to you by First South Farm Credit. What does the farm mean to you? Maybe it's just a piece of land where you can go to relax or enjoy the outdoors. Whatever the farm means to you, First South Farm Credit can help you finance or refinance that perfect piece of land. As a successful financial cooperative, First South shares its profits with its borrowers in the form of a patronage refund, which lowers your cost of borrowing. To find out how First South can help you, visit their website at firstsouthland.com or call them at 800 955 1722. They are an equal housing lender. All right, folks, before we get into this week's interview, I want you to take a minute and sign up for our email podcast each week. All you have to do is text the word hunting to 773-770-4377. Again, just text the word hunting to 773-770-4377. We will send you the email each week as soon as the new show is ready. Clint, I know 2020 was a huge year when it came to seeing a lot of new buyers in the market, a lot of people that were looking for smaller properties. And I'm just seeing a ton of folks that were in metropolitan areas, urban areas. They're either looking to get out and live full-time on their property and start, especially now that we're all able to telework. Uh, there's been a lot of folks that have realized the opportunities that are there with teleworking. We're just seeing a ton of people interested in that. We're also just seeing a lot of people that are interested in being more self-sustaining. You know, your market, you work a lot of recreational type properties, bigger tracks, uh, hunting tracks. Are you seeing that same interest across everywhere you cover as well? Yeah. I mean, it's not been size dependent, really. I mean, that, that's been sort of a universal mindset for all of it in 2020, no matter what the location or the size of it is, everybody's got that mentality of having a place to go and to get away. Yeah. And I think one of the things I see quite often is the buyers that are interested in setting up a homestead, whether it's for full-time living or, or just to have that second place or that kind of that 
bug out place for better, you know, lack of a better term. There's some folks that are just, they're ready to jump in with both feet and others that are looking for a turnkey opportunity. It's a little bit daunting, everything that they might have to do to take truly raw land into what some would call a homestead. And, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to really outline what it takes to start a homestead, how you want to start a homestead. And to do that, we're talking with Jason Shear and Jamie Mosley with Radiant Places. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank, Thank you. you. So let's start out by just defining this. That's one of those buzzwords you hear a lot, homestead. And it makes me think about like folks on the Oregon Trail, you know, and they're in their wagons trying to set out and, and, <laughs> and start a homestead. But I think that's changed a lot today. It's probably more like trying to find good Wi-Fi. So what, what do you guys see that is necessary? What are the true elements of a homestead? Because you've got lots of different types of properties, lots of different types of land that you deal with. What are those elements of a homestead to you? I think it, it means something a little different to everybody that you ask. And I think that's what, what's great about it from our business is we try to offer something for everybody. And uh, I think the, the things or the elements that are unique to a homestead really are, it's more than just a home, right? It's a place to uh, grow a garden or raise livestock, or like you said, a place to just go to get away, to bug out, whether that's, uh, you know, to get away from, from some stress of a job or hectic lifestyle. It really is a, uh, a combination of things that, that's more than, than just a home. I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think that's one of the big differentiators between land and, you know, what, when we think of residential, you know, residences is that it's just four walls and a roof when you're talking about a house. This is something where folks are really trying to get back to being able to have more freedom to do whatever it is that they're, they're interested in doing. The thing that I'm seeing a lot is is more of a self-sustaining interest. You know, it's, it's folks that are wanting to maybe grow their own food, like you say, or maybe have some livestock. But you mentioned, you know, that you try to have something for, for everybody. What, what are those different types of buyers? Because, I mean, the purpose of today's show is really to help landowners that are, if they're thinking about maybe selling their property and they want to develop that property somewhat to be able to make it appealing as a homestead, but also for buyers who are looking for the type of property that they would either want to turn into a homestead or that's already ready to go. So who are those folks that are out looking? What are those different types of homesteads? I think what we see is it, it, it's really highly dependent on your, your background, right? If I'm coming from a, a major metro area, you know, two acres seems like a homestead. Well, I grew up in rural North Florida, you know, uh, working on farms and, and I think of two acres and I think, man, that's confining, you know? And so mm. I think it, it depends a lot on your background. And so for us, um, we typically operate in, in the arena of, of one acre lots up to, you know, four and 500 acre recreational properties. So we try to have a product that covers all of those uh, needs and wants, depending on you know, your background and what you're looking for. I think one of our most common buyers that we found is the family that's been stuck in a neighborhood for years and there's no room to park their toys. You know, you can't park your boat out. HOA is always on you. Um, there's no space and freedom. And those people typically buy our like one to five acre lots and they turn it into everything from a gardening area, chicken coops, they've got their tractors, they really take advantage of their space and use it to kind of provide for their family and give their kids room to play. And that's another thing we've noticed is people think that they need 10 plus acres to create a homestead or what they think is a homestead. But really, once they get out and walk the property and start looking at land, they realize that maybe from one to five acres is perfect for what they need. Um, so it's really unique to the buyer. So we try to offer a pretty wide variety of sizes, depending on what people are looking for. Yeah, I like what you're saying there because I know I see the same thing. Folks are coming in and they, they just got this number in their head that they've got to meet. Mm -hmm. You know, they've got to find 10 acres or 100 acres or 1,000 yeah. acres. But I can tell you from growing up on about two acres that if you've got to cut all that grass, like that's plenty. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you you know, it's it's all dependent. But what I'm really hearing you say is that it's not necessarily acreage dependent to be able to create a homestead. It's just more about 
what your intended use is. I know I've seen a ton of what you just said, Jamie, is these young families that really want to be able to give their kids. I mean, I, I just see the, I was up at Clint's place a few weeks ago with, with my three-year-old and I mean, just him being able to just run and yeah. run and run and run and never hit a fence line, never yeah. worry about, you know, was he getting on somebody else's property? That is very attractive for that young family. But I've also seen a lot of, uh, a lot of older folks too, maybe more retirement yeah. age, you know, that are looking for some, a place to spend their, their retirement years. What, what do they want that's different? What attracts them to a homestead? What I found, I was so surprised. I don't know if I was living under a rock, but I was so surprised that that definitely is a popular demographic that buys our properties are the retirees or people that know they're going to be retiring in the next few years. Um, they'll buy land and sit on it until they're ready to build. And they um, definitely want to be within a close distance to health care. So that's one thing that I, that I know is important to them. But we have a gentleman that bought out here recently and he just built his home and we're far enough out to where you're in the country, but you know, it's 20 minutes from a local well-renowned healthcare system. So they have the ability to have their space and privacy. He goes out and rides his tractor, takes care of his home and his land, and um, he's still close to conveniences. Yeah, and you you talking about proximity to healthcare makes me think about proximity to schools. You know, going back to that millennial family, uh, or maybe you know just pad just just quite a little bit over. I'm not quite a millennial, but I'm pretty close. That's one of the things we've talked about as a family. Is is you know, man, it'd be nice if we could just combine our our recreational property with our residential property and just live there full time, so that I could just what you just said. I mean, I sure would be nice if I could jump on the tractor and go run it for 30 minutes instead of mm -hmm. having to devote a whole weekend yep. to go into my place. But what's held us back from doing that has been schooling. You know, we're, we're thinking about our young children and, and them being able to number one, be in good schools, but two, just what's their quality of life going to be if they've got to have a big commute to school. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Dad gets to stay home, play on the tractor, but yeah. you know, little Max got to go get on, <laughs> take a two hours hour of, long of riding ride. every day. Yeah. That's, that's, that's not good either. So, you know, th that's interesting though, how, it, you know, it's attractive to both, both age groups and different, different folks. Let, let's talk about some of the practicalities of, of establishing a homestead and, and maybe what you guys do to take some of the, like I say, it's somewhat daunting if you've never done it before, what do you do when you're taking a piece of land that maybe was formerly timberland or may have been uh, agricultural land and you're wanting to establish these homesteads? What are the actual practical components that an infrastructure that you need to have in place for, for folks to be able to do the types of activities we're talking about? Really for us, you know, each, each area that we operate within has different guidelines regulating, you know, the division of land. So we're taking, uh, in, in some cases, you know, hundreds of acres of historic timber land and making five acre lots. And there's certainly a process to go through to do that. But we're also looking at what, what our buyers are going to going to require, you know, how, how do we get electricity to, to those lots? How do we provide adequate access and, and really uh, make a, a final product that's usable to start building that homestead? And what we've typically done is try to do just enough to, to point people in that direction. Uh, you mentioned freedom earlier, and we found that people, you know, they really latch on to freedom. We did a lot of consumer research when we originally started, and uh, we, we hope that people would tell us, okay, I want 4.7 acres and I want a pond and I want a fence and I want these things. But of course, the, the thing that, that uh, was the most predominant factor in people choosing this kind of lifestyle was freedom. And, and so we want to we wanna kind of check the boxes we can to point people in the right direction, but not do too much that really starts to infringe on that that freedom so the basic utilities and, and access are, are really what we're focused on when we're you know providing this uh, this product you know i, I want to take you back to something you know you were saying is that these folks entering this market they're looking for this homestead and why do you think 
we're seeing a resurgence in this. I mean, it wasn't always there was a, a big demand for folks wanting to have their chickens and grow a, a victory garden or something like that. I mean, this has not been something that maybe my parents were interested in. What are some of the elements behind this resurgence and interest in having this kind of rural property? We, we talk a lot in our group about kind of that, that turn back to the lifestyle that your grandparents were familiar with, you know, I always often think about talking about homesteading with my grandparents and how they would probably laugh at me, you know, if they, if they looked at it in the same perspective, you know, we're, we've gotten soft over the years. So, so our view of a homestead is probably a little bit different than, than theirs was. Theirs was certainly more of a necessity than, than we look at it today. But I tell people the world has changed over the last 10 months. You know, this, you know, COVID-19 has changed the way that we commute, the way that we operate. It has changed our thought process on, on schools. So I think the resurgence that we're seeing really is a result of, of just the world uh, changing. And, and I don't think that's all for, for the bad. So I, I'm excited about, you know, how we've been forced to realize that we can work from home. And it's, it's opened up the, the possibility as far as location and, and where these homesteads need to be. Yeah. I want you to crystal ball for a second, because I thought after the 2008, you know, market crash that we saw, and I really thought that people, the country as a collective was going to pull back and rein in, you know, maybe some of the, uh, some of the spending habits that we had as a country. And I really thought we would see more of that than what we did. I think we got, we got right back to our old ways pretty quickly. I wonder if you think that we're going to see lasting effects from the last 10 months. I mean, the vaccinations are starting to come out. Uh, you would hope that in the next 12 months, we're going to be getting back to pretty much normal life as, as everyone gets used to this. Where do you see it going? Did you see some of this trending up before we hit COVID? I think it was definitely already trending that way before COVID. And when COVID hit, a lot of the roadblocks that were there that were really kind of stopping people from taking the final leap and actually purchasing land they're dissolving now. The Wi-Fi, you know, capabilities have increased. So many people are working from home now. Corporations have changed their cultures. There's so many big changes that have happened. Delivery services come out now. I live out in the country and now I can get my groceries delivered where when I first moved in, I couldn't. So there's so many big changes that have come as a result of COVID that that just helps make these roadblocks kind of a lot easier to navigate. Banks are a lot more familiar with the process as well. Um, you know, even a year or two ago, wanting to go and get a land loan and a home loan together, you know, that whole process, banks were like, wait a minute, what? You know, and now they're, you know, it's a thing now. So I definitely see the trend continuing. I think that a lot of our buyers too, they all kind of have the same values. So they want the freedom and they want the privacy, they want the sustainability and that those values are only getting stronger, you know, through this whole pandemic and whether there's a vaccine or, you know, things put in place to where we're safer, I think that this just kind of solidified in them what they really want and they're even more, the drive is even higher to really take the leap and move out. And just to add to that a little bit, I I think we will see a shift back to something that looks a little bit more like what we considered normal 2019, but I think normal has changed. So Mm -hmm. I do think some of these effects will be, will be lasting. It's funny to hear you say, Jamie, about grocery delivery out in the Mm -hmm. country. Like, like, uh, I think to, uh, my godparents, you know, they grew up on a farm in South Alabama and they literally only left the farm for, I think it was, I think they told me it was coffee sugar and to get their corn ground. I mean, that they grew, you know, everything else was on the farm and they just, they made just enough cash so that they could pay for the things that they had to pay for with cash. I mean, everything else was pretty much self-sufficient. So they would laugh at us and they would still say we were soft, even, even if we are living out in the quote unquote country. But uh, it's just interesting to see all the different reasons why people do it. And, And to go back to what you're talking about, the different sizes of land. Okay. And I know you said you've got acres on up to hundreds of acres. How much is somebody really looking for? How how do you go about if you're talking to a buyer and 
and they're telling you what they want to do and they maybe they've already got a number in their head. We deal with this a lot. You know, I'm, I want a hundred acres. Well, mm-hmm. Why do you, you know, what do you, what are the kind of questions that you want to ask someone or you want someone to ask themselves to figure out how much land they really need? I think it's, uh, it's understanding, you know, what they want to do with the property, what they want to get out of the property. And that varies widely depending on the market that, you know, that we're operating in. If, uh, you know, here in Northeast Florida, uh, wetlands are a big factor. And, and so you've got a certain percentage of the property that you probably won't be able to use for, you know, cultivation, but it may make a good area to hunt or a good buffer. And so in other areas, you know, like East Texas, the wetlands may look a little different than they do over here. And so uh, the amount of a 10 acre tract that's actually usable for a, a specific purpose is, is very different. And so just understanding what, what they want to use the property for and never underestimate the value of, of people getting on the ground and, and really looking at it. And I think that's, that's what is important you know, to us about having a good broker network so we, we can take people, get them on the ground and let them see and, and then uh, develop the vision that they have for the property, uh, you know, on site. Mm-hmm. What would you say your average size is that you guys sell across the entire territory? Our sweet spot is around 10 acres. We certainly sell 400 acre tracks and, and we sell two acre tracks, but I think our, our sweet spot is around, you know, five to 10 acres. Jason, do you think that that's due to demand of just folks really that's all they need or is it fit? Does that 10 acres fit well into a price that people can afford? What what are we talking about? If somebody's wanting to get into 10 acres, you know, what kind of range of values can they expect? Yeah, affordability certainly plays uh, a, a large factor into this, right? If you, if you ask me how much land I want, well, I want a thousand acres, but that doesn't mean that I can afford a thousand acres. So I might be able to make do with 10. So affordability is certainly uh, something that we have to, we have to think about. You know, it really is, in my estimation, is pretty affordable, whether that, that 10 acres uh, is $75,000 or $200,000. When people start to look at what they could have in town, and compare that to what they can have in the country. I think that's is what really sells it for us. Yeah, I agree with Jason. Once they compare it to, you know, the fourth of an acre lot that they're on in their neighborhood in town, and then they come out and walk a property and they're thinking like, oh, I would love to have 20 acres. And we take them out to five to 10 acre property and they can see where their house would go and where their shop would go. And that's kind of around here where we're at, where Jason and I are at. It's just full of those five to 10 acre properties. And it's so neat to see the homesteads people have built on them. And they've got their houses and their shops and, you know, their chicken coops and some have livestock. And that's, that seems to be, like Jason said, the sweet spot is that five to 10 acres for them to really have enough space to feel like, you know, they've got the freedom and their kids have freedom. And, but it's not too, too much to maintain and manage. I call it a lot. We've got privacy with proximity. You know, they want yeah. to have that buffer, but also not be too far of a drive from whatever the exactly. things are that are important to them at their stage of life. How often does, you know, beyond that, in terms of the schools and hospitals and things, how often does, does huntability come in to play? Is that a big request? I think it's becoming a smaller request, Clint. I think there's a certain component of our customers that, that really do, you know, want to, uh, to recreate on their property. And while we try to make it as conducive to, you know, doing what you want on the property as, as possible, when you start, you know, having several lots side by side, uh, hunting uh, can become kind of troublesome. And, and so what we typically do is, is just fall back to the, the various state regulations. And, and, you know, we, we don't want to get into, can you hunt it? Um, I always tell people, I look at about 40 acres as probably the minimum huntable size track. Um, you can certainly hunt a five acre track, but I think it, it's hard to do that without uh, some interaction with your neighbors. So we try to manage that by lot size and, and just by the state regs that, that impact each, each product. You mentioned earlier the different regulations that come into play when you're talking about breaking up 
uh, tract of land, you know, and into these smaller size parcels. Clint and I just went through this on a on a place in uh, Escambia County, Florida, where, you know, there were some regulations that you could only divide a property so many times. And so dealing with those types of things, how big of a headache is that for someone? If, if somebody wanted to go in and try to do this themselves, let's, you know, everybody's, we, there's always a do it yourself or in every group. So if you were going to go buy, so, well, I'm going to buy a hundred acres and I'm going to carve myself out 10, you know, and then I'm going to sell the other 90 or whatever. How, how big of a headache is that for you guys? How much time do we have? In this? Uh, <laughs> it varies widely. I think, again, it's almost like our buyers. In, in certain markets, it's not hard at all. In other markets, it's extremely difficult. And I think what we're seeing is as uh, the popularity of this type of uh, product increases, uh, jurisdictions are adapting or adjusting uh, to try to uh, manage that. So as they see more development, Places that typically had very little regulation now are, are starting to recognize that they might need or want more. And, and so we're seeing a, a general shift in uh, increased regulation, uh, even in some, some historically rural counties. And, and if done right, it, it can work very well, but, but it can be quite a headache when you're trying to do it yourself. We get a lot of questions, people wanting to um, create family compounds on on their properties and now with the you know mother-in-law trend where people are putting properties dwellings on their property for their in-laws and for their you know aging parents um, it's even more of a it's gained a lot of popularity so I think that's kind of helped sway the um, roadblocks in that aspect too they're getting a lot more people that want to go that route if somebody's looking to do this I mean we, we deal with this just about every just about every piece of property we sell you know we we find that most people don't realize you don't have to have a survey to sell a piece of property. Uh, you don't have to. That right. doesn't mean you shouldn't. Is every track, every, I'm sure every track you guys put out there is surveyed and, and would you definitely recommend that to, to a buyer? What, what would you recommend if somebody was going to go out and, and they were going to buy 10 acres of their own that they found on their own? It wasn't a radiant place. You know, is a survey a, a vital necessity to you guys? Absolutely. I think a survey is an investment uh, into the security of the ownership of the property. It, it's kind of like a title work. You don't think you need it until you do. Uh, and then and then you can't get it quick enough. And so I, I, I look at a survey as a way to kind of preemptively look for any issues that could pop up an easement that you don't know about or an encumbrance. And so especially when you get down into the smaller parcels, I think a survey becomes even more and more important. Yeah. We always tell people on top of having a great broker that, you know, is an expert in land sales um, to really do your own due diligence and look at the plats, go to the county appraiser sites, get a survey and just check flood zones. There's so many ways that you can kind of do your own research on the land that you're looking at buying and that'll help you determine what you can do on it. Yeah. I think that's one of the biggest values I see in what you guys are doing. You're taking all that out of the the thought process and allowing people to just look at the property and say, do I like this one or do I want to go on the next and taking those potential, like you said, Clint, headaches out of the equation. When we talk about homesteads, I think we've done a pretty good job of going into what's needed in terms of infrastructure. But the next question in ought to be in any landowner's mind in any any person who's considering buying or investing in a homestead is the best places to actually homestead because you guys I know manage what hundreds of thousands millions of acres at this point and you don't all want to take all every one of those acres and turn it into a homestead you, you're still looking at highest and best use is it going to be best for residential or commercial or or you know large acreage home site or timberland and that's a, that's what I want to focus on next is really where those best places are to homestead we talked earlier about proximities and how that's been really important to those two buyer groups we talked about that millennial family and that retiree what is that proximity? You mentioned, Jamie, you mentioned 20 minutes to that hospital. What do you feel like is the, um, is the sweet spot or what are y'all seeing as the sweet spot for proximity to, let's just say, amenities, whether it be healthcare, schools, just things that you need to get through uh, uh, maybe every week, not every day? Yeah, Jason and I were just talking about this and um, it's interesting because it, it seems like 
it used to be like, I want to be 10, 10 minutes away. I want to be able to go to Target, run to Publix. But even just like within the last year or so, and especially during, you know, more recent times, it seems like people's willingness to have that drive be a little further, it's kind of outweighing. It's like the willingness to drive is, is they're more willing to drive further now. But as far as like our properties, we always um, put them close to like top rated schools. Cause I know, I think that's a, a big one. I know you touched on it earlier is having a school your kid can ride the bus to. You don't want to have to drive your kid an hour to school. So I'm thinking, I, I think 20 to 30 minutes away is, is kind of going to be the norm. Um, definitely, I think it's definitely more than it was even a year ago or so. I think people are realizing that that's less important than they thought to be 10 minutes from town. So Well, and like yeah. you said, too, the, the infrastructure of uh, available services is increased dramatically right. just in the last year with COVID, but you can only expect that to go up as technology yeah. increases. And Dollar General puts a, right. puts a store yeah. on every corner, right? So, exactly. yeah. you know, as long as people are relatively close to what I would consider basic necessities, you know, groceries and gas, we still see that, but, but people are willing to go a little bit further for the, for the more, you know, major services, you know, it may be a half hour to an hour away from a, a larger metro area. So I think as long as we, you have those basic services, people, people are willing to, uh, to mm-hmm. be a little bit further from the major. Yeah. I think too, what I see just, you just think about how much better a car ride is now than it was 30 years ago. I mean, it was a big deal to go on a four hour car ride, you know, <laughs> and nowadays you just, you know, you pop in, listen to the hunting land podcast, just put it on repeat, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and cruise down the road. And, but I mean, the cars are much safer. Everything's more comfortable. I think that a, a, a car ride is not near what it used to be. So that's that's definitely playing into it. Another good thing of living out further is your commute, even if it's the same distance or time, you're not in city traffic, you know, right. you're not sitting on a highway. So that's a huge benefit for a lot of people that move out here but may still work in town is the commute mm-hmm. is prettier, more relaxing, and then you come home to your huge space and your own property. and yeah. Yeah, we grew up, you know, I grew up and, and my my father worked about 45 minutes away from his main, you know, place of employment for decades and mm-hmm. he always told me he really enjoyed the drive because it was a in the at the end of the day he was able to really disconnect from the work yeah. day and and by the time he got home he was, you know, he had totally disconnected and was ready to be home and all that. So I I agree with you. I think that's one of those things people think they care about but then once they actually experience it they care less and less about yeah. it. Ta- proximity is certainly important. School systems, healthcare, the, those things are important. But you know, what about the actual land itself? When you when you guys are looking at a, a tract of land that you're considering turning into a radiant place or a homestead, what are some of the things you you mentioned access earlier and some of those natural features like wetlands? what are you looking for in terms of a mix for a, an individual property? What, what does five acres need to be able to be a good homestead? Yeah, I, th- I think what we, we realized, you know, pretty early on, you know, our parent company is a timber company. And so um, that's typically the raw material that, that we're working with. And we realized pretty quickly that if we can't give people a little bit of a view into the property, that it's hard to imagine what it could be or assess what, what you really need with it. So, you know, we, we found that we have to thin the timber and open it up a little bit and, and get people into the track where then you can start to realize, well, okay, my home could be here and my garden could be there and my shop in the back. And so I think opening it up a little bit for that visibility, but also obviously if you have five acres and, and four and a half acres are, are wetland, um, that's going to be a, a tough sell, right, mm-hmm. to, to that vision. So there has to be a, a good mix of usable land versus buffer area. But, but really, some of those uh, natural features can also add a lot of interest in property and, and people. You know, building a long driveway that crosses a, a small stream, it may seem like an encumbrance, but uh, once you, you look at it and you dig into it a little bit more, it can actually become one of the highlights of, of the property. It's very interesting because the lots that we have that are just 
upland, just flat. We've cleared a lot of the timber. Those sit the longest. So people want to see, they want to have that variety and they want to have, you know, those natural aspects of it that are unique to their own property. They want to pick which trees they may want to remove and, you know, where they want their driveway. They want to sit back from the road. And so it's really interesting to see the lots that just are snatched up so quick. Some people don't think of a, a timber track as a blank slate, but but we uh, we certainly do because if 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 you think of a timber track, if if you want a wooded property, then it's there, right? You can customize it. You can you may choose to to harvest a few of the trees to to open it up a little bit more. But but if you have a, a cleared property and you want timber track, it's, it's hard to stand those trees back up, and it takes a little time for them to grow. So. We really think of, of, of a nice wooded property as a blank slate, and, and certainly a percentage of our our buyers do uh, convert timberland into pasture or crop, and, and that's great. But that op- option's always there uh, with with a wooded track. Yeah, you don't have the like you said, it's hard to stand those trees back up once they're down. You know, you you're talking about where you put that home and the challenges that come about when you've got a you know, a five acre track that's got four and a half acres of wetlands or Jamie, you were saying some of those, some of those places get snapped up immediately and some of them sit a little bit longer. If somebody's looking at a home, looking to homestead and whether it's five acres or 20 or whatever it may be, what do you guys look for when it comes to where to place that home? You know, because like for me, when I go onto a rural property, I want to get away from the road, but also that just means maybe I got I'm going to have to run utilities. <laughs> further. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the things that you think of when you're trying to determine, do you go ahead and pre-clear that spot for that home and and pre-determine that for the buyer? Or is it a, a, you know, where you're walking in and saying, this would be a good spot, that would be a good spot. What would you advise uh, for somebody where to put the home and then how much land to clear for it? The short answer is it depends, right? That's, Mm -hmm. That's the tough part. I think we have experimented a lot with what we call a uh, a showcase property, where we would go in and clear that spot and go ahead and predetermine that. Uh, but again, that freedom is what people are looking for. So hey, I want my home to be, you know, a mile and a half off of the of the paved road. But the next person comes in and says, "Man, I, I you know, I, I want quick access and I want to be uh, within a hundred feet." And so, a lot of times, it's it's showing or giving an example, but then allowing them to to really customize their lot how they want to. So again, it's not having so much of a prescriptive layout, but but maybe more of walking them through the process of why you would want it closer, why you would want it further back, and then giving them the ability to do either or. We work a lot with um, the utility companies and you know if we have to come in and plat property, we provide easements that allows them to get the power to the back of the property if that's if that's what they, they want. And also you know, if they want to be closer, um, that's fine. So we, we typically don't prescribe that up front. We also have a really great educational blog called Rethink Rural. And we use that um, as a resource for our buyers and for customers and anyone on the internet <laughs> to get great resources on not only buying land, but how to maintain it once you have it. Great tips and tricks with experts in the various fields. Um, so we kind of point them in that direction, you know, here's, here's the five types of rural driveways. Here's the benefits of them all. You know, think about this. If you're putting your house further back, how to, you know, use your land as an investment. So many great resources. So we're glad that we have that content to give them um, once they do purchase land, because we do kind of want to be their resource and help them along their way to create this dream property they just bought. Yeah, it's like anything, you know, once you have this this new thing, you've got to learn everything new that you've got to do with it. And uh, I've read some of those blogs and they're, they're right on point. I, I really uh, think y'all do a great job with that. You know, thinking back about, you know, those best places to homestead, and we mentioned it, or I mentioned it a little bit earlier in the show. For me personally, I mean, schools are important, but to be able to work, I've got to have access to high-speed internet. There's just no other way around it. 
we've run into this on our recreational tracks where we're trying, we try to get something done and the lack of, of high speed internet is just, it's, it's, it kills it. Where are things with, with rural internet and when the types of properties that you guys are, are developing, do they have high speed internet? Is that a requirement for you or, or how, and how important is it to the people that are looking? I think it's certainly uh, important. And I think in the transitional markets that we operate within, it's certainly becoming less and less of an encumbrance as the availability for, you know, satellite internet and even, you know, now cellular internet is, is becoming more popular. It's uh, it, we really have not heard a lot of, um, you know, people that, that want to buy our property and, and they just don't, they don't have that because it is so widespread. It happens from time to time, but it, it's, it's becoming pretty rare. Yeah, it's funny on social media, um, on our Facebook page, we'll post a property and someone will comment like, have fun getting internet out there. And people will chime in and they're like, I have internet just fine. I love it out here. And you get these people that are just the diehard rural living lovers and they are very defensive about their way of living. And they're quick to tell you, I have no problems. Here's what I use. Here's some tips. Yeah. Well, and since internet was made a utility and years ago it seems to in the in the broadband grants and things like that that have come out they've really made an effort to get more high speed in a rural area so it's just becoming more and more prominent yeah you used to have to and you can still do it but you used to need to get like a booster from your cell phone service provider to put in your house and you had to pay for that and there was all these roundabout ways and now like you don't need that you know Yep, you're talking to a guy with one. I've got amps mounted to a wall in a closet and satellite internet <laughs> running through the boosters. Oh my goodness! I'm looking forward to the day that we don't need that, but it's yeah. getting better every year. But where where that is is extremely rural. Clint, that way, wait, that's not rural. That's called backwoods. <laughs> <laughs> different, totally different. Yeah, there's a difference. That's why you don't <laughs> want to have any cell phone service. <laughs> talking about utilities, I mean, one thing we didn't touch on yet is water. I mean, as far as your homestead developments, are you looking for access to public water or the customers putting in wells? I mean, what do you typically see? We're probably 99% uh, well water. Every once in a while, we'll run into uh, municipal water. Uh, I would say more of a a rural uh, county provided water system. And if it's there, we certainly try to take advantage of that. But but it it may be closer to 90%. But 90% of the time, I would say we're, we're relying on our customers to put in wells. Mm-hmm. I would imagine that you, you know, that's one of the benefits of when, when somebody's buying it in one of your developments and if there's other folks around right there around them that are dealing with these same issues, well, guess what? It's going to be easier to find a, a surveyor. It's going to be easier to find the guy who digs the well. It's going to be easier to get these companies that come in and there's probably, are there economies of scale to be had, you know, when, when you're doing these types of homesteads. Let me take this another direction. One of the other big buzzwords right now out there is agrihoods. You're starting to see people uh-huh. that are banding together, you know, in these yeah. these uh, five acre parcels, and this guy's got the chickens, and that that lady's <laughs> got the garden, and you know, everybody's kind of tr- horse trading on the side. Which I love the idea of that, and I think it develops an awesome community and all that. But getting back to the the utilities question, you know, are there some economies of scale to be had by by putting these homesteads? in proximity to each other? Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I, I believe there is. I think, uh, you know, even some some less rural communities that did not have access to public infrastructure are putting in community wells and, and community, uh, you know, uh, sewer systems. And so I think the opportunity is there. We, we've experimented with that just a, a little bit. But I think, too, a large part of the, the freedom and the independence comes control. And a lot of people want to control where the water comes from. So having a well is viewed less of uh, an inconvenience or an expense, but, but more of something that gives them control over that water supply. Yeah, I like that a lot. I, grow, growing up on well water, too, is just... Uh you know, people like, it's kind of like a badge of honor, you know, <laughs> like you, you haven't lived until you've had to replace a well pump. So that's, uh, 
It depends on where you're at, though. I'll say that because some some places have better water than others. Well, you're you're a you're a Florida boy, Jason. So you had the yeah. you probably had to deal with the sulfur water. I would imagine you uh, haven't lived until you started your day with a coffee pot of sulfur water. So that, that's <laughs> a badge of honor, too. <laughs> that's right. You mentioned you know Texas earlier, and you talked a little bit about Florida. Where are you guys doing these types of? Uh, these types of homestead, I won't call it a community, but I mean, it's similar to that. Where, where are these predominantly for you guys? And, you know, is, is this hot around the country or is this a Southeast thing or what, what are you seeing? This is definitely hot. Uh, I would say nationwide, you know, we, we operate primarily uh, in the Southeast. So we have, uh, we have properties in Florida and Georgia, Alabama, Louisiana, and Texas. Um, we also have ownership uh, in the in South Carolina, and uh, in some other surrounding states as well. Uh, we also have ownership on the West Coast, and so we're we're seeing a similar product with very good response in in Washington State. So, I would say this has definitely been something that is a nationwide phenomenon, and and so we we're just looking to to expand. We can't produce it fast enough, which is mm-hmm. is great for business. Yeah, it's been really interesting to kind of watch the analytics and our audience and how um, how it's changing or not changing through this pandemic, seeing who was previously just kind of looking at the website and looking at properties, and then now they're becoming more interested. They're filling out forms to get more information. They're requesting, you know, things from the brokers and people from the northern states are um, showing their engagement more than they were. It's just been interesting to see the geographically the people that are making their way over to the site and searching land for sale. You know, even just in the southeast in Florida is a popular search land for sale. In Georgia has been really popular. So it's just crazy how this surge of people wanting more information on this lifestyle has changed since this pandemic. Yeah, that's been another interesting thing. And you brought it up saying, you know, talking about the folks from up north that are, are looking down south uh, for homesteading opportunities. I have definitely seen a, a ton of folks coming from the northern, more northern climates down to the more southern climate. Is that another factor? I mean, obviously, you can homestead just about anywhere if you look at, if you, you know, you watch, uh, you watch the folks up in Alaska, they're, they're doing it in some of the most extreme environments, but you know, are you seeing a lot of folks moving from North to South and making that move? Or is this mostly, you know, somebody's in, uh, in a metropolitan area and they're just wanting to move closely out of it. I think we're, we're hearing a lot of that trend, but I I don't know that we can say we have seen it come to bear like like mm-hmm. as much as we've heard. So I, I think it is something that's starting and I think it is tied heavily to uh, used to it was certainly tied heavily to climate. Now I think it's tied to politics as much mm-hmm. as anything as well. And so I think people are, are trying to uh, escape whether it be you know conflict or strife in those larger metro areas uh, in, in northern states. And uh, yeah. well, and really just across the board, any any metro area that, that's seeing yeah. that, uh, we're starting to get interest from that. And the, you know, the lifeline of a land purchase is pretty long. Um, so hopefully maybe, you know, in the next year or so, six months to a year, we'll see if there was actually any, you know, sales from it. But that was the most interesting thing was that previously they were just kind of looking and searching and They would look at a few pages, but now, um, like I said, they're more engaged, like they're requesting information, they're calling brokers, they're taking that next step, um, which just happened this year, you know, or or last year, oh, it's 2021. Last year, we started getting that, which was so interesting to see. I've seen a lot of folks interested, uh, more so the people that are moving, making big moves, big geographic moves like that, that seems to be the retiree. I don't see that out of the you know, I don't see millennial families moving from across the country to do this. Uh, that seems to be more just the, you know, they're moving right outside of the city, that kind of thing. We talked a little bit about proximity earlier and, and you know, being in proximity to those, uh, those amenities and whatnot. Do you see that proximity growing 
what I'm thinking of right now is the person who's thinking about buying and maybe they're wanting to buy a piece of land that might become a good homesteading opportunity, maybe 10 years from now, 20 years from now. Is this something that you guys project increasing from a, from a radius perspective? Is that making sense? What I'm trying to ask? I think uh, selfishly, we probably uh, are, are hoping for that. Mm-hmm. Um, we hope that tr- the trend continues and I, and I, I don't see any indication that it won't, you know, I don't know that it will continue at the same pace, but I don't, I don't see the trend changing anytime soon, you know, as, uh, cities grow, uh, services grow. And I think that, that, uh, that sphere of, of, uh, demand is just going to continue to creep further and further away from those, those major metro areas. It's going to be interesting to see because, like you said, there's only so much land within a certain radius of a metropolitan area. But if you drive through the country, you see the old store that's closed. You see, especially old farm towns, you know, you see the old store that's closed or maybe the old school that's not open anymore. And there was a community there at one point. It's really going to be interesting to see now that the rules of work have changed, if there's a resurgence in those amenities for people that want to live a more rural lifestyle because in that way it would continue to grow. Something we talk a lot with the different uh, municipalities that we operate within too is, is people move out because they like that rural lifestyle and the rural character. And so there's a lot of talk about, you know, that growth you see comes with densities that can make some of those folks, you know, uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And so we, we are committed to, uh, preserving and promoting rural lifestyle. And I think uh, by having these rural communities, it's a great way for municipalities to do that. Um, because when it's a five acre homestead or a group of five acre homesteads, it will never be a thousand unit master plan community. While there's a place for that, um, you know, preserving that rural character is, is important to us. I'm glad you brought that up because that, kind of brings it all full circle. We talked about folks wanting to get away from the HOA uh, and they're moving out rural. What kind of protections do you guys put into place so that a person who, when what they want to preserve is that freedom and that space and that buffer, what kind of protections do you put into place so that that's not compromised for them without restricting them in, the, you know, cause I'm sure there's a, it's got to be a fine line. You got a toe where you, you don't want to be restrictive because that's the whole reason you're moving out there. But then again, you don't want somebody taking the five acre place and chopping it up into five one acre places and then turn it into a mobile home park. Jamie and I were talking about this earlier. I think it's something that we've, uh, we have, we've been at this long enough that we've been able to experiment. And, and I think we've gotten close to what people perceive as protection without you know, intruding on that, that freedom. And so what we like to say is we, we like to have some, uh, you know, just right size covenants that, that really protect the character of what it is without getting too prescriptive uh, about what you can do. So I would say it's basic, it's four or five, you know, basic principles or restrictions that, that guide, you know, what, what folks can do, but, but it's not intrusive at all the type of buyers that we get, you know, going back to what they value, they're usually happy for these restrictions. They're, they're what they want in place for their property. Um, so it makes them happy that we've got them. So I think we've nailed, nailed it down to where we preserve the integrity of our product and what we want it to look like. And, and then it also makes them happy because they know they're never going to be living next door to, you know, a junkyard or, something like that yeah well it's like every time i'm driving around with my wife and i say look see that babe you know like look at that wouldn't that be awesome to live right there she says and then she'll see something else. see that's why you need an hoa you know she, <laughs> she'll point <laughs> exactly. it you know, so we both got our ammunition and mm-hmm. sounds like you guys have really solved that that issue so that's definitely a good thing well jason jamie you know there's a lot going on with a homestead this is not something you're going to be able to just figure it all out in a day uh there's a lot of questions that lead to more questions that lead to phone calls and things like that. And I I know you guys, you mentioned the blog earlier, Jamie, where folks can go to find more information uh, on these kind of topics and a lot more. If folks are interested in taking a look at 
radiant places in the rural communities you guys are, are developing right now, where they are, what's available, where should they go and, and what should they do to get more information? Um, our website is radiantplaces.com and it's got all of our inventory on there from, you know, like we said earlier, we're in the Southeast um, mainly is where our inventory is. And it's also got these great testimonials and stories from our real buyers who have bought land from us and what they've done with it, what the process was like. And it's so helpful to be able to see real people and how they did it. Um, Cause it is, it's not an easy thing to do, but it's easier. And there's a lot of resources out there that will help you along the way. So um, radiantplaces.com is the best place to go. And then, like I said earlier, we've got our blog um, with a ton more resources on there, um, rethinkworld.com. Well, we sure appreciate you guys joining us and, uh, and giving us the info and uh, look forward to talking about some other components of rural living in the future. We wish you guys a, a, a prosperous 2021. Y'all are our first show for 2021. So uh, as we should be. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. So I hope you guys have a good, uh, good rest of your year and uh, we'll be checking back in with you soon. Great. Thanks, Joseph. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Clint. Clint, have you ever thought about selling your place in town and moving your family out and living on a farm? I mean, you, you did that growing up. Y'all, y'all had some acreage. I did as well. You know, we both grew up more rural and now both live a little bit more more metro we have a lot of access to rural land so we get our fix but i think about it you you ever thought about it what do you think about the growing up experience going from not being in a neighborhood to being in a neighborhood what do you think is better for a kid i think there's a benefit to both you know i'm where i grew up i was i literally rode the four-wheeler to the mailbox parked it in the woods and then got on the school bus because i was a half mile from the road and i've seen you a half mile is pretty good walk for you easy now uh, uh, but it's getting worse every day, but, uh, you know, where we are now, we're, we're in the County with larger lots, but I've still got sidewalks and we've got a lot of kids around us. Uh, so my kids can run outside and play all day with them, so, but we've still got deer running through the neighborhood and, mm. and I can be in the woods within five minutes. So it's, we're, we're kind of that limbo right now, uh, where, you know, the 10 years prior to us moving where we are now, we were in the city yeah. and looking back, we, we stayed there too long. We, we didn't have that, the real community there that we do now, even though we're more rural because the people just feel like they come together better uh, in a rural setting than they did inside the city limits. Uh, it's, been, it's funny to hear you say that because I've heard people make that exact claim that they, even though they lived in close proximity to lots of people, they felt disconnected from their community more so than when they've moved into places where they weren't so close to everybody. Where I grew up, it's the same kind of thing. I was hunting and fishing every day, pretty much, one or the other or both. And I love that aspect of it, but I also did not have any other kids that I played with, you know, it was me and my siblings and most of the time me by myself. And so like I say, it's a balance of the two. You can't, I, I will say this, you can't go wrong going rural. I don't think. No, not at all. I, and you can go wrong being, <laughs> being in close proximity to, cause you, I just think from a, from a parenting perspective, your kids can get into things that they can't get into out in the woods. You know, I think there's, as long as you've got a community close to you, you know, whether that's church or school or what have you, I think there's just so many more true life lessons to be learned from a family perspective in a rural setting than there are in high density city life, you know, just things that are going to be really universal throughout our lifetime, regardless of age or location, you know, and, and like you said, it's just a lot safer and a lot less trouble to get into as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The kind of trouble you get out uh, into out in the country is usually not bad for you. So yeah, it's just a good story. Yeah, that's right. Well, folks, that's going to wrap it up this week. I hope you guys have enjoyed, uh, you know, a little discussion on how to start a homestead and, and maybe it'll help you if you're thinking about doing the same thing. We uh, appreciate you guys listening. Hope you'll stick around for the next show. Uh, as always, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And hope you guys stay safe out there. We'll talk to you next week. 
This week's show is brought to you by Bucks Island Marine. Bucks Island is a family-owned and operated business since 1948. They have new pontoon boats, bass boats, bow riders, and aluminum boats for sale. They love trade-ins for boats and motors, and they can rig your boat or ship your new motor anywhere in the United States. They provide boat service on all kinds of boats, even if they weren't purchased from Bucks. They have factory trained and certified technicians, and you can visit them at 4500 Highway 77 in Southside, Alabama, or give them a call at 256-442-2588. This week's show is brought to you by First South Farm Credit. First South Farm Credit can help you finance or refinance that perfect piece of land. To find out how First South can help you, visit their website at firstsouthland.com or call them at 800-955-1722. They are an equal housing lender. And also brought to you by Wildlife Management Solutions. The experts at Wildlife Management Solutions can guide you on selecting the best forage for your soils and goals. So give them a call at 877-400-8089 or check out their website with more information and a full dealer list at productsforwildlifemanagement.com. This week's show has been brought to you by Joe Baia and Clint Flowers, members of the top producing team at National Land Realty, the fastest growing and most innovative land brokerage in the nation. Bottom line, we know land, and now is a great time to buy or sell. Want to know why? Shoot us an email at pros at landhunting.com or call us at 855-NLR-LAND. And also SunSouth. From outdoor equipment, parts, service, accessories, SunSouth has you covered. Own the best for less. Visit SunSouth or sunsouth.com for quality John Deere equipment. SunSouth, for those that do. And also brought to you by Great Days Outdoors Magazine. Great Days Outdoors Magazine guides you on hunting and fishing south of the Mason-Dixon. Become a better southern hunter and angler and pick up your copy today wherever fine magazines are sold or save online at greatdaysoutdoors.com.